So if you brought your Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in the book of Revelation once again. Revelation chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 11. It's all 11 verses of chapter 10. Uh, and uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. And you will also be able, if you are joining us online, uh, to see that scripture on whatever device you are watching. Uh, again, it's Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. So last week, we dealt with chapter 9, uh, and we saw what was, at least in our study thus far, probably one of the most, if not the most thus far, unsettling passage uh, of Revelation, uh, with the descriptions of the locusts and the great army that comes out of the abyss uh, that seeks to not just wreak havoc, uh, but literally kill a third of humanity. Um, it is a destructive, violent frightening passage about the judgment that is to come, ushered in by God, uh, who is judging uh, a sinful world separated from him. Uh, and so, as we get to that, that height, and everything is kind of picking up intensity, which you can see that throughout the book of Revelation. There's basically, when it comes to the judgment of God, three sets of seven that happen. There's three, there's seven seals that we've already talked about. Uh, we are in the, in between number six and seven of the seven trumpets right now, uh, and then there's going to be seven bowls of wrath after that. Uh, and with each articulation of the judgment of God, there is extra intensity. Things get amped up uh, a little bit. We saw that between the difference of the seven seals and the seven trumpets, um, but we're going to see things continue to pick up intensity moving forward. Uh, and so just like a, a really good movie uh, that is picking up a lot of intensity, a lot of things going on, and then they give you a moment to catch a breath, there's a little bit of that going on in chapter 10, right? Uh, we have all of this, this judgment and all of this, this um, terrific imagery uh, going on in chapter 9, and then in chapter 10, we have an interlude where we get to see something else about what God is doing, about what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do uh, as the rest of all of this is playing out. Uh, and the same thing happened with the seven seals, if you remember, when we were reading through those. Uh, we looked at the first six seals, and then there was a break uh, between six and seven, and so now we're seeing the same thing with the trumpets here in chapter 10. So as we move along uh, today, I want you to remember kind of where we are contextually in that way. Um, years ago, when I was a junior high student, um, so if you can imagine me a lot smaller, uh, both like vertically and horizontally, uh, if you can imagine me a lot smaller as a seventh or eighth grade student, um, they're smaller, therefore more athletic. Uh, went to a small school, uh, smaller than Grandview, much smaller than Grandview, uh, where you could play every kind of sport. And so I played basketball when I was in junior high. And I remember we were playing our rival one particular week. Uh, they were the Blackwell Hornets. We were the Highland Hornets. Uh, it was like, you know, we've always had a rival. I know Grandview used to have one years ago with uh, Godley. I know that's not necessarily the case anymore. Um, if you're a Texas fan, uh, your rival's Texas A&M or vice versa. If you're a Cowboys fan, you have the Eagles, uh, the Washington football team, uh, and the Giants uh, that, that are your rivals, uh, you know, the NFC East opponents. We all have those rivals. You know, it's like uh, when Mufasa is showing Simba the Pride Lands, and there's the one area where the light cannot touch, that he should not go the dark area. That's where the rival lives, right? That's like, that's the place where evil comes from. You all have one of those rivals somewhere in your history. If you did any kind of competition of any sort, not just athletic, but any kind of competition, period, there are people with whom we, are, we have great rivalries. This was that school for us. 
Uh, we were there, we were playing a basketball game, uh, and I was asked on, I was asked to pray by our coach at the time. Uh, and so I led the team in prayer. I might have just prayed the Lord's Prayer, I can't remember, but I ended it with God, let the best team win. And then we lost. So I guess God let the best team win. Uh, the best team wasn't us. Uh, little did I know. I remember saying that prayer, saying amen, looking up at my coach, and he had that look on his face like, I don't know if you should have prayed that. Uh, I've seen us. I know what kind of team we are. Uh, so anyway, that one didn't work out. Uh, but you know what? It was really good news for the other team. Um, that's how things go in competition, in a rivalry, right? Uh, when something good happens for you, it's really, really good news and it's bad news for your rival. Some rivalries are so intense, right? In college football, we see these happen, not just in our state, but in others, to where even when the teams aren't playing each other, you want the other team to lose, right? Uh, and if your team loses, you can at least feel a little better if the other team lost too, because what's really bad news for them is really good news for you. Now, sports isn't the only place where that happens. Uh, when you were a kid, uh, you know, becoming aware of uh, boys or girls that you might have had crushes on, uh, if you remember that and, and your crush liked you back instead of your friend who also had a crush on the same person, that was really good news for you, really bad news for your friend. Uh, there's often times in our life where things are really good news for us that aren't good for anybody else. If you're going down 35 a little too quickly, and you're following someone who's also going a little too quickly, and the cop pulls them over and not you, that's really good news for you, really bad news for them. By the way, you're a sinner, stop speeding, okay? So all of that is, is, is it's really good news for you, not great news for them. Uh, when you pick a restaurant as a family, especially if you have any sort of, like if you have several numbers in your family uh, with kids, you know, in the back, you pick a restaurant, you're going to hear one of them go, whoo-hoo, and you're going to hear the others go, ah, man, really good news for one, really bad news for the other. All right, let's take it a little bit more of a serious route, all right? When you are watching the news and you see a, a terrible storm coming, it's coming this direction, but then it misses where you live. It goes just to the south or, or north as it goes around you. It's good news for you. It's not great news for people who live elsewhere. And then probably the ultimate example is if you have a family member who's on one of those organ donation transplant lists and they finally get the organ that they're so desperately waiting for, that's really, 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 really good news for you but you also know that it meant some really bad news for another family who made that organ, whose loved one made that organ available. Sometimes we have things that are really good news to one group of people that's bad news to another. God's plan for redemption, for the redemption of the world, is simultaneously wonderful and horrific. And we see that articulated perfectly in the book of Revelation. We see things that are, by a worldly perspective, if you, if you look at any kind of pop culture reference of Revelation, you will see it presented as this terrible set of events. Uh, you will see it as, as you know, think of the, the, the movies, Armageddon and all the other ones like that, where there's some sort of cataclysmic end of the world event. It is, it's a terror movie, or it's a, it's a thriller movie, it's a, it's a disaster movie, uh, it's a horror movie, whatever it might be, if it has the, the, the tropes that they pull out and take out of context in Revelation and then apply with some Hollywood format, uh, it is something that is, is seen as scary, seen as bad news. But for us, and I've been trying to say this throughout this series, the book of Revelation is not bad news for us. 
Uh, it is news of the revealing and, 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 and glorification of Jesus as the Christ, uh, as, as the one who will be victorious in the end, who will extend that victory to all of us. Yes, there is some disaster. Yes, there is certainly some violence and judgment. But for those of us who are, as the book of Revelation, the language that's within it itself, those of us who are sealed by the Spirit of God, who have the seal of God on our foreheads, for us, it is the greatest news imaginable that God will come, day, will come someday and everything that is unjust, he will justify. Everything that is wrong, he will make right. Everything that is broken, he will heal completely. And all of that will be done once and for all and we can live with him in eternal glory because we are saved and washed by the blood of the Lamb. It's the best news imaginable for us. But for those who are not sealed by the Holy Spirit of Jesus, those who are not placing themselves under the sacrifice of Jesus, it is horrific news. As we read these judgments, there are things that are going to happen. And to suffer them outside of the grace of Christ is the worst news imaginable. And so what we see in Revelation is a mixture of both. And we're going to see John kind of allude to that in the passage that we're going to read here in Revelation chapter 10. Before we jump in, let's pray together. Father, once again, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the Spirit your Holy Spirit being present here amongst us and within us. God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And God, even as we sang a moment ago, God, we, we need you all of the time. But God, we especially realize now that we need you as we're seeking truth. God, we know that you've provided that perfect truth for us in your holy word. And God, I pray that through the word of your truth and through the power of your spirit to implant that truth within us, God, that you would do a work of transformation within us as we encounter you, as we encounter your word. God, may you be glorified in everything that is said and done, and anything that does not glorify you, God, may it be completely forgotten. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his leg like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven, when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So we see yet another mighty angel dispatched by God to reveal his will 
to John and those who are on the earth to witness the events taking place. This particular angel, we have some very terrific descriptions of as John watches this event take place. So terrific is the descriptions of this angel that some interpreters believe that this angel was actually Jesus himself. I don't think that's what's going on, but I think there is the glory of the Lord that is sent along with this angel, and you can see that in the description of it. We can also see some other things in the description of this angel. This angel is said to have rainbow, a rainbow over his head, uh, which again, if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, you'll see a rainbow in the presence of God and, and the descriptors of, uh, of the Lamb and, and, and the God who's on the throne and all of that. And so we have some of those same descriptors being used here to show the, uh, you know, this, is, this person, this angel, this messenger uh, has the authority of God. But also when you think of rainbow from Scripture, you're, you're going to be drawn back, of course, to Noah and to the story of the flood and to God's covenant with Noah, God's promise with Noah to never flood the earth again and never destroy the earth in the same way. And so you're going to be reminded that even after chaos, God has a redemptive plan. Right? And so even in the midst of after what happened in the flood, God shows his redemption and makes that covenant with Noah. And so after the terrific events of what's going on, terrible events of what's going on in chapter 9, it is good for God again to remind us that even after these events or even during chaos, even during judgment, that God still provides a way out for his people, that God still provides redemption. And we see that in another image that's used in describing the angel, and that is that he has legs like pillars of fire. The pillars of fire, uh, many who were reading this would be drawn back, or many who were hearing this, the Jews especially, would be drawn back to the Exodus story. Uh, when God led the Israelites out of Egypt and then led them by a pillar of fire at night, showing once again God leading his people out of oppression, God leading his people away from judgment, away from God's wrath and into redemption, into freedom. And so we see God still acting in that way through the Revelation story, that God is carrying out his judgment, but that he provides a way out for his people. He provides redemption for his people. But we also see just some of the power of this particular messenger. He's giant, right? He has one foot on the land, one foot on the water. It is uh, basically impossible to imagine something, someone, some messenger of God so large. When he speaks, he speaks with the voice of a lion, reminiscent of Jesus himself. It is the power of God present within this messenger, once again showing us God's power and showing us that this is indeed God's will. And then we have this very mysterious thing happens. John, as he's watching this event take place, he hears seven thunders. And if you're just reading this for the first time, you're going to be thinking to yourself, okay, uh, I've already seen seven seals. I've already seen seven trumpets, or at least six of the seven trumpets. So these seven thunders must have something to do with God's judgment too, which would make sense. Trumpets were a way of announcing things that were coming. Uh, thunders also in Scripture are w ways that often point to the judgment of God or to the voice or presence of God. And so maybe God has something to say through these seven thunders, just like he has through the other things that he's used. But then we get a curveball thrown at us. And John says, I was about to write these things down, and then there was a, a voice from the throne, a godly divine voice from the throne room that said, stop, put the pencil down. I don't know, was it a pencil, but you know what I mean. Put it down, don't write these things down. They are not to be recorded. Now, humanity being humanity has spent time trying to figure out what these seven thunders are. You can Google, what are the seven thunders of Revelation 10? And you'll find all of these, don't do it by the way, but you can. Uh, you'll find all these different examples of what people think these things are. 
Spoiler alert, they're pure conjecture because Scripture does not tell us what these things are. And for once, not for once, for one among many times in Revelation and throughout Scripture, we have this reminder. And I know this isn't popular, and I know this doesn't satisfy our our every need for curiosity, but here's the reality presented in this Scripture and throughout Scripture and in the world itself. There are some things we're simply not supposed to know. I hope you're okay with that. I hope you're okay with a God who's wiser than you. Uh, I hope you're okay with a God who isn't giving you all of his notes. You know, we don't have a God who's like, you know, hey, I have this plan for the redemption of mankind. What do you guys think? Does that work for you? Let me run it by you. Let's brainstorm real quick. You know, let's get together on this and come up with the best possible way. No, we have a God who decides what he's going to do, and he doesn't have to tell a single soul right? Our God is not required to do anything. Anything that God lets us in on, any truth that God speaks to us is an act of grace, right? Because God in his eternity has taken eternal truths, unsearchable ways, and packaged them in a way where even we can understand them right here in his holy word, through the presence of his actual flesh, Jesus Christ on earth, and his Holy Spirit today who helps us interpret this perfect truth. God has given us that as an act of grace. He didn't have to do that. God didn't have to reveal any of himself to us, but he reveals so much of himself to us. So it's okay if there are things you're not going to know. You, human, are not going to know everything there is to know, especially about this particular book. There are some things that are designed to be a mystery. There are some things that are designed to elicit a response of faith from you, not of knowledge. Because as the author of Hebrews says, it is what? Impossible to please God without faith. This is the response that God wants from us. Not, God, show me all your notes and then I'll follow you. God, tell me every little detail and then we'll be cool. But rather, following God is an act of faith. One day, we will see clearly, but until then, we see us through a mirror darkly, right? Until that day comes, we have to act on faith. There are some things you simply aren't supposed to know. So rather than trying to figure out what those seven thunders are, that's that's not the objective here. The angel very quickly tells us what the objective is. He raises his hand, and he basically swears an oath to God in heaven to the one who created the heavens and everything in them, to the one who created the earth and everything in them, to the one who created the sea and everything in them. Again, pointing back to God's sovereignty. And he says, the time for delay is over. When the seventh trumpet is blown, it's gonna come to an end. Like this is, this is basically saying we're about to get to finality. Up until this point, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, God's judgments have been partial judgments. In the seal judgments, we see one of them, uh, with one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, able to harm a fourth of people. But in the seven trumpets, we see in several different cases, both in the trumpets that are judgments against the creation itself, uh, uh, dry land, uh, sea, fresh water, and sky. Uh, we go back to Revelation chapter 8, or light, not sky. We see God, again, destroy a third of those through his judgment. And then in Revelation 9, when these great armies come out of the abyss, they are allowed to destroy a third of humankind. And so we see partial judgments. There's still, even at the end of Revelation 9, we get the understanding that there's still time for people to respond, even though they don't. They have the opportunity to repent. They just don't. But what's coming now, what's coming next is the end. All of it's going to be brought 
to fruition. It's no longer going to be any, any half measures. It's going to come in totality. It's going to come in its fullness. The judgment of God is about to be fully realized. That also means the mystery of God is about to be completed. It's another phrase that is used in chapter 10 as John describes what he's seeing and we hear from the angel, this mystery of God. If you're familiar with the epistles of Paul, you know that this is one of, one of Paul's phrases that he uses often, is the mystery of God. And in different places, Ephesians 3 being one of them, Paul talks about the mystery of God being essentially that God would would use the Jews early on, right? But then he would invite, even though the Jews would reject him, he would invite the Gentiles into the faith and that salvation would become available to everyone, not just a select group of people in, not just a select ethnic group of people in the Jews, but that God would extend his salvation to the whole world, to all of the nations, to the Gentiles themselves. And so as God extends salvation even to the Gentiles, we see this mystery of God played out. And here in Revelation, we have the words that this mystery of God will be completed. God's redemptive plan will be carried out. God's plan for redemption will not be delayed. God's plan will not happen one moment later than it's supposed to. God's plan will not happen one moment sooner than it is supposed to. God has had this plan in store for the earth and everyone in it from the very beginning of time. Actually, before that, before the foundations of time were laid, God himself was preexistent, Jesus with him, according to John chapter 1. And then even in the preexistence of earth, God had this plan in mind, and he is carrying out this plan to perfection. God's plan for the redemption of mankind, for the redemption of the world, will not be delayed. It's coming. Now, the one thing that I haven't noted yet so far in Revelation 10, the one object is the little scroll. Now there's some debate amongst scholars over this scroll as to exactly the, the nature of it or the identity of it. Uh, some think that it is the same scroll that comes up in Revelation chapter 5 uh, where we have the image of uh, in heaven, uh, uh, you know, the, the weeping that no one is able to open the scroll and then we have the lamb show up, the, lamb, the lion who is the lamb who can open the scroll and we see the, 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 the seven seals of the scroll slowly open over the next couple of chapters. Um, maybe it's the same exact scroll. Uh, maybe it's something different. It's called the little scroll, but it might just be that this angel was giant, so it looked little in comparison. I don't know. It could be a different scroll. The point is, though, uh, that this is God's word. Like, this is God's plan. Uh, this is God's redemptive plan, part of it in some way. What God is about to do, what God is doing, what God has done uh, through his redemption story, through history, this redemption that will not be delayed, we see this scroll kind of representing what is, what is coming and what has happened. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah in the Old Testament eat scrolls, just like John does. In both cases, it tastes sweet like them. As a matter of fact, you can go back to the passages in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 2, I believe, kind of a part of Ezekiel's calling experience, and you can see his eating of the scroll is, is it almost kind of fits. It almost is like John is, is in a way kind of alluding to that, like obviously on purpose. Uh, it's very similar in the way that it reads. And so it's calling that, that memory to mind. But what's different in, in John's experience as he eats the scroll is that it tastes good on his lips, just like it did with Ezekiel and Jeremiah, but it makes his stomach bitter. Now I'm going to ask why that question is. 
A part of this, the reason why John eats the scroll, I believe, is a symbolic retelling of what Revelation is. We learn at its outset that it is a message from God, mediated from God through Jesus, through Jesus to an angel, from an angel to John, and then to the seven churches of Revelation and us by extension. Well, that is the way that this message of Revelation is delivered from God to God's people. And so we see John as kind of the last part of that message. He takes in the prophecy that's about to happen. He takes in God's redemptive plan. He ingests it. And then at the end of chapter 10, his job is once again to go and prophesy to kings, to rulers, to languages, to nations. His job is to go tell about what he is seeing, about the redemptive, the redemptive plan of God, about what is to happen. But again, it tastes sweet on his mouth. There's something wonderful about this truth, but it makes his stomach bitter. God's plan for the redemption of the world is simultaneously wonderful and horrific, depending upon your perspective. For those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, God's plan is welcomed. Now again, there's much in the book of Revelation that causes one to say, wow, like whether you're afraid or not, it is all inducing in you to think about the images that are described. Revelation 9 being not the least among them that causes us to pause and think about how, how great and how horrific and how strange, how scary, we might use that word, these events will seem for those who are actually alive to witness them when all of this comes to fulfillment. We know that's the case as believers. We see the violence. We see the judgment. We see all of the things that, in a way, cause us that sense of dread. But in the end, we want that day to come as believers. For those of us who love Jesus and want to be with him, we want that end to come. Because we see not only that world that is, we see the world that is around us today and that there's plenty of evil around us today. There's plenty of things in our world today that are broken and in need of repair. There's plenty of suffering in our world today that we wish would cease. There's plenty of, of evil that goes uh, without vengeance. Uh, there's, there's plenty of, 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 of pain. There's plenty of uh, people being alone. There's plenty of sickness. There's plenty of death. There's plenty of, of lostness. There's plenty of you fill in the blank, negative emotion, negative feeling, negative reality. There's plenty of that that we wish and we hope someday goes away, and we know that it will, and so we want that day to come quickly. That's why I think John, when he covers up the book, or when he finishes up the book, and we'll see that when we get to the end, his response is basically, come quickly, Lord. Like, let's, I know I just saw all of this and the horrific nature of it, but we want you to come and, and make things right because we look around and we know things are most certainly not right. And we want you to fix this once and for all. And so for the Christian, we welcome this. We welcome the future reign of Christ. We welcome the glorification of the King who died to set us free. We welcome that moment when everything that's broken is made right. For those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, for those who are underneath the sacrificial blood of Jesus, we welcome that day. But for those who are under the sway of sin, this plan is absolute disaster. It's absolute disaster. Because to be apart from God while this is going on is to suffer the reality being described within the pages of this book. And it's nothing that any of us want to go through. 
Now look, I'm one of those preachers who never wants to scare anyone into heaven, right? I don't want somebody to uh, come down to the altar just because they want to get out of hell free card. I would never preach that, and I hope you would never respond out of that reality. What I hope that we always respond to is the love of Jesus, and he was willing to lay down his life to save us from that horrific reality that is coming, and that it is our gratefulness out of his love for us that we respond to him and that we follow him. But the truth is the truth, and I cannot avoid this truth. What is being told in Revelation will happen, and everybody on this earth will experience it one way or the other, under the blood of Christ or outside of the blood of Christ. And for one, it is really good news because Jesus himself on the cross of Calvary has borne the wrath of God once and for all, never to bear it again. And for the other, who has rejected the cross of Christ, who has rejected the sacrifice of Jesus, that wrath is there to be poured out on them. Not because God is a bully, not because God wants to carry out his wrath on his children, but because God must judge sin and evil so that it may be removed from eternity and that his children can experience a sin and death-free environment forever and ever and ever and ever. God must carry out his judgment because God is just. God is love. And where there is sin, perfect love and perfect justice cannot exist. God must expunge reality of those two things, sin and death. And in order to do so, he must carry out his judgment and his wrath upon them as God, the consuming fire that he is, upon those things so that they will be dealt with once and forever. I am glad that God judges sin. I see that as great news because I know that the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ has taken my judgment from me. When that moment comes, I will not experience the wrath of God. I might experience the fallen world around me and the, the consequences of living in a naturally fallen world, but the wrath of God is not reserved for me. It has been poured out on Christ. But for those who reject Christ, the wrath of God is waiting. It is terrible news for those who are outside the sacrificial saving power of Jesus by their own decision to choose away from him, to reject him instead of to follow him. For those who are under the sway of sin, God's plan is disaster. So let me ask you a few questions. Is God's plan good news for you? Let's start there with you individually. Is God's plan good news for you? Or is it frightening? Again, I alluded to it a moment ago. Hollywood, stories, music even sometimes, uses things from the book of Revelation to weave these horrific or terrific stories right? Where the world is going to end and we see, we see the, 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 the language of apocalypse. We see the, the language of Armageddon. We see the language of all of these things being used in pop culture as this big, scary thing that's going to happen someday that's going to destroy everybody. But if Hollywood's telling the story, what always happens? Some human 
heroic character comes in to save the day, right? Bruce Willis sacrifices himself on the asteroid and blows it in half so that his, his son-in-law and everybody else can go back home and live happily ever after. You know what I'm talking about, right? In Armageddon, that's what happens. You have this heroic character, this human character. Guess what? There is no such human character capable of avoiding what is coming our direction other than the person of Jesus Christ. He is our singular hero. He is the one who provides a way out. And if you believe in him and follow him, if you confess with your mouth that he is Savior and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from the reality that we're talking about. You will not be disappointed. You will be rescued from the coming judgment. Again, we might have to experience the natural fallenness of earth. We might even be present for some of the things that are happening in the story, but God's wrath will not be poured out on us because Jesus has taken that wrath from us. For us, that is the best news imaginable. Is it good news for you? Or are you frightened when you read Revelation? When you read Revelation through the lens of the cross, it is not a scary story. It's the end of the best news imaginable. But when you read Revelation without the lens of the cross, it's terrible news. What is this news to you? If you don't know Jesus as Savior, today would be a good time to change that. During our invitation here after a moment, I would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Christ as Savior. I would love to have that conversation with you while we're praying together or after church. If you want to hit me up then, if anybody's watching us online, message us on Facebook. Let us know that you want to talk to somebody about what it means to follow Jesus. It's good news. Let me ask you another question, though. For those of you who do believe in and follow Jesus as Savior, is this news good news for your family? And the people that you love, when they hear this message, when they read this book, is God's plan good news for them? Or does it frighten you where they might be? What might happen to them when this day comes? If so, then take this as another reminder that it's now is the time to share that truth with them. Now is the time to share God's redemptive story, God's redemption plan, the gospel, with them. And then finally, even outside of your family and your circle of loved ones, whom in your life is God's plan not, for whom in your life is God's plan not good news? There's people in, in yeah, this is the Bible Belt, I know. Everybody knows a little bit about the Bible and a little bit about Jesus. At least it feels that way. But there are people all around you who don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, even right here in the Bible Belt. Plenty of people right here in Grandview that don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. Plenty of people in your workplace that don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. Plenty of people on your GYA team or your social club or your class at school. Plenty of people around you that don't have a relationship with Jesus. For whom in your life, in your sphere of influence, is God's redemptive plan bad news? And if you know someone well enough to have an answer to that question, today is a good day to tell them the truth. Today is a good day to remind them of the news. Now 
I'm not going to tell you you're going to go tell them the news once and that's going to be it. They're going to hug you and say, now I believe in Jesus and I'm saved forever. Some might reject him over and over again. That's not up to you, though. It's not up to you to make someone accept Christ. It is between God and them. God will extend the grace for them to respond. It's up to you to extend that option, to preach that truth. For whom in your life is this bad news? I want us to think on those questions. Is this good news for me? Is this good news for my family? Is it good news for the people in my sphere of influence? If it's not, how can I tell them about the truth? How can I share this that seems like bad news from a worldly perspective, this good news with them? Because at the end of the day, Revelation is good news. It's the good news of the glorification of our Savior Jesus, who will extend as the first fruit of righteous, of, of the resurrection, who will extend that resurrection to us, and we will get to experience, not because of anything we've done, salvation for eternity because of what he has done. Again, think on those three questions during our time of invitation. We're going to sing one more song together here in just a moment. Uh, I'm going to pray first as, the, as uh, they're coming up. Uh, and after we pray, I want you to respond in whatever way God is leading you to, uh, even as we sing this last song together. Uh, again, I'll be down here if you want to come and pray with me. The altar will be open if you want to come and kneel at the stairs and pray. You're always welcome to pray with somebody around you or right there where you are by yourself. But allow God uh, to speak to you during this moment. Allow him to convict you of names, maybe the people you could share the gospel with, uh, your own state before him. Uh, and then, and then just, just have this moment to pray to God about these things. Hopefully a moment that will extend beyond today and that you can c continue to carry on this thought process and this conversation with our God. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Ethan is going to lead us in one more song together. And as he does, may you move in whatever way God is calling. Father, once again, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your grace through the salvation of, through the, through the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us. Not because of anything we've done, not because of any character quality that we have, but simply because of who you are and what you have done for us through Jesus. God, we thank you for this best news imaginable. The good news that you would come and rescue us though we don't deserve it. God, we give all praise and glory to you for that news. And God, for those in our world who don't know that this news is good news, who treat this news as though it is bad news, God, may you send us. God, may you show us whom we can share this truth with. And God, may you give them the grace to respond. God, may you show them uh, the truth of your gospel and the goodness of this news. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.